I invite you uh, to the Old Testament book of Nahum while we're trying to sort out the microphone issues. We will use this uh, until. And the Old Testament book of Nahum is going to present to us a person that you may think you're very familiar with, but as the, the, the fellow who discipled me and the Lord took home in the year 2000 often said, we're not nearly as familiar with the God that we think we know so well. And Nahum is going to introduce us to God, who he is and what he's like. And so I invite you to this Old Testament prophecy, three chapters, and we'll consider the theme, good God. That's a phrase that's been used sacrilegiously, probably by our own lips many times, and no doubt by a pagan world, throwing his name around in vain and putting the word good in front of it, but meaning something that appalls them. So using those two words, good God, in a way that uh, amplifies their own idolatry. But we want to rescue that phrase back and see that he is in fact good, but good in a way that may shock us. The ESV Study Bible summarizes the whole message of the three chapters of the book of Nahum in one sentence this way. In a sense, the whole book is an extended taunt. The prophetic book of Nahum consists entirely of oracles of judgment with no oracles of redemption or blessing. The three short chapters break down like this. Chapter one is a poem. It's about God. It's about God in his goodness, but there are two aspects to this poetic expression in chapter one. First, because he is Good, he therefore certainly will destroy the wicked nations. That's an expression of his goodness. And second, chapter 1 would tell us in this poem, not only will he destroy the wicked nations, he will also preserve his faithful remnant. That too is an expression of his own commitment to himself, his character, his goodness. So chapter 1 is that poem, the good God will destroy the wicked And he will preserve his people. Chapter 2 specifies the fall of Nineveh, which was the capital city of God's enemies, Assyria. And Nineveh will certainly be destroyed. That's prophesied in chapter 2. And then chapter 3, not only Nineveh, the capital city, but Assyria, the entire empire, will also fall. These are consequences of the goodness of God against rebels. Well, Assyria did fall. If you know your Bible history, um, how could I do it in summary fashion? Um, When Israel entered the promised land, they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after being rescued from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea when they were rescued from Egypt, but they had been in Egypt for over 400 years. So 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt, God raises up a deliverer for them, Moses. Under the leadership of Moses and under the mighty hand of God, Israel is delivered from Egypt and their bondage and slavery. They cross the Red Sea. It's a miraculous deliverance. They're brought into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And no sooner than they cross the Red Sea, they're given the law, God's good commands for his ransomed people. The law is for the saved. It's not in order to save them. It's they've already been delivered. Here's how to live for the king of the kingdom. Well, for 40 years, they wander and wander and wander, and you know the story. It's their rebellion that keeps them wandering. 
But after 40 years and God raising up another generation, they cross another body of water, the Jordan River, and they're brought into the promised land, the land of Israel, that good land that is often described as flowing with milk and honey. And once they enter the land, there's the Canaanite conquest. They conquer the land of Canaan, not fully as God had dictated, but partially according to their own whims and preferences at times, partial obedience, which is full disobedience. And they suffer the consequences of that. But one of the good expressions of God's kindness to Israel is he gives them a king. And they, they wanted their own king, their own way, because all these other pagan nations had a king. And God's people said, hey, wouldn't it be good if we're just like all those people too? So God gives them a king. His name is Saul, and he was a godless man. And Israel paid the consequences of following a godless king. But in his kindness, God carried out the plan that he had always intended, and he raised up for them David, a king after his own heart. Now, David wasn't without sin. You know his story. Egregious sin. Horrific sin. The story of David and his kingdom is not about David or his greatness. It's about God and his goodness. And the reason I tell you all that story is because after David's kingdom, In the land of promise, something happened. David's son Solomon became king, and after Solomon's reign, the kingdom was divided. And it was divided again because of sin. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. I tell you that because in God's good judgment, he raised up a pagan nation called Assyria that was to the east of Israel, to attack, conquer, and plunder them, and carry them away as captives. It is that country that God is speaking against in the book of Nahum, Assyria. Nahum is actually the sequel to the book of Jonah. Jonah, we saw Nineveh repenting. Perhaps it was a partial repentance. We don't know the hearts of the people. God does. But we know that in not too long a time after Jonah... And the great revival that came to the city of Nineveh, not too long after that, we're reading the pages of Nahum. And they've returned to their wickedness. Like a pig, they went right back to the mire. Like a dog, they returned right back to their vomit. And Jonah, Nineveh repents. Nahum, Nineveh has returned to her wickedness and to her doom. And God is speaking in his goodness against them. Well, with that in mind, I invite you to Nahum chapter 1. We'll read the first eight verses. Nahum chapter 1. Hear the word of the living God. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake. 
because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. The word of the Lord. Meet me at the throne of grace as we again ask for God's help and blessing. Father, it's for your glory that we ask that you would reveal to us your character, who you truly are, that you would show us from the pages of the prophet Nahum, what is the end of the wicked. Show us in no uncertain terms the destiny of those who will not repent and return to you. Let there be no mistake of what Jesus meant in the Gospel of Luke when He said, unless you repent, you also will perish. But show us also, we ask, the great and glorious, merciful heart that you possess. Show us what is the hope of the righteous. Indeed, show us Christ. He's the one who said that the prophets are about me. So by the Holy Spirit's aid, who's inspired these pages, we ask for the illumining work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Show us Yourself. In Jesus' name, Amen. Today's sermon on Nahum could be summed up this way. Take comfort, O suffering children of God, for the character of your king demands that one day every single sin must be punished. And all wickedness will come to an end. I don't know if you take comfort in that truth, but hear it again. Take comfort, O suffering children of God, for the character of your king demands That one day, all sin will be punished and all wickedness will come to an end. I've already mentioned the ESV's summary of the book of Nahum. They've said it so well, it's worth repeating again. They say, in a sense, the whole book is an extended taunt. The prophetic book of Nahum consists entirely of oracles of judgment with no oracles of redemption or blessing. Does that sound like good news to you? Or how from that would we get a title Good God. It's a dark book of God's judgment on His enemies. But it does have brilliant rays of hope for the people of God. Well, there are two simple things that I want to try to draw out that are more profound and deep than we could explore in one sermon or 100 sermons. But I want to lay them before you for your careful, prayerful consideration. Listen prayerfully. Listen even asking for the help of God. The first thing that I want to draw out is the destruction of the wicked. This is no doubt Nahum's main theme. 
When I say destruction of the wicked, I mean verse 2 of chapter 1. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. And He reserves wrath for His enemies. That's what I mean when I say the destruction of the wicked. I also mean verse 6. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. I mean destruction because of what we see in verse 9. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Similarly, I'm thinking about God's Word to Nineveh in chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land. And no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Well, we could look at verse 5 of chapter 3. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. The destruction of the wicked. It's coming, as we say often around here, like a freight train. Nothing will stop it. You see, there's coming a day when all of God's enemies will be finally destroyed. Not decimated or annihilated, but destroyed. What Jesus describes as the eternal death. The book of Nahum is really a precursor. It talks about real events in human history that actually happened. But it's a precursor to the great and terrible day of the Lord. When the wrath of the Lamb will be revealed. And all of God's enemies, not just Assyria, an empire that was wicked and attacked the people of God, which was actually part of God's sovereign rule in judgment on Israel. He was in control of those wicked people. But their wickedness will wear thin. It will run out. It will run its course. And it will finally be stopped. Those people will be destroyed for their rebellion against God. Although the Assyrians are not directly mentioned in Nahum's prophecy, the message is clear. They will be destroyed. Now I want you to try to envision this. It's about 650 years before Jesus is born. And you live somewhere in the northern half of what you might picture in your mind now of the map of Israel. There you are in one of those little villages. Your hut is lined up beside all the other huts. The mud brick baked huts that you built by your own hand and the roofs that you thatched together. They're all lined up. There you are. And here comes Nahum. Probably from the southern kingdom. We just put together some of the limited information we have about him from the book, but probably from the northern part of the southern kingdom or right on the border between Judah and Israel. And here he comes with his prophecy. And he's telling you, you oppressed people, you people who've suffered horrific loss, those Assyrians who've come through and plundered your villages two doors down from you, it's still in shambles because of what they did. You can still hear the screams and cries of the children snatched from their mothers and the mothers who had worse done to them. You have nightmares at night because of the terrible things the Assyrians did that you watched with your own eyes when you went and hid in the bushes just outside the village. And here comes Nahum, and he's telling you that the God of heaven is going to see to it that they have their day in His presence. 
Wouldn't it strangely comfort you? Not because you feel like you have to exact punishment, but because you know that the God who is, is such a God that He will see to it that every sin will be punished. Through Babylon, God would overthrow Assyria. And He would do it in devastating fashion. The wickedness had gone up long enough into the nostrils of God and God would soon exact His justice upon wicked Assyria. It will be the same with every other wicked nation and individual. What you may not know is how Assyria rose to power to begin with. How did they get so strong that they could conquer Israel? You see, they were the people in Jonah's prophecy, specifically Nineveh, their capital city in Jonah's prophecy, who God describes as, quote, exceedingly wicked. Jonah chapter 1. Matthew Henry said this, God speaks this way. And God operates this way. Calling those the wicked people and declaring His coming judgment upon upon them because, listen to this, God is a God of inflexible justice. Did you hear that? Picture the strongest rod or beam you've ever seen. And all the torque and tools in the universe trying to bend that beam and it not budge. God's justice is like that. He is inflexible in His justice. He cannot bend and He will not break. He is just. Therefore, all sin must be accounted for. His character demands it. So Assyria rather rose to power. How? So, by invading and raping and pillaging villages and cities that they conquered, crimes of war against humanity that are so unspeakably grotesque and gross that they would cause our stomach to churn, they were people of bloodshed. They gained prominence by the sword. In 714 B.C., about 75 years before the time that I just asked you to envision yourself in a village in Israel, about 75 years before that, they had come in and invaded and pillaged and captured and killed many among God's people, Israel. The Bible Project video that we share week to week here, those guys are so good in putting together overviews of books of the Bible, they said it so well. Quote, Assyria was violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before. I don't know what you have in your mind right now, but think up the documentaries that you've seen. The war crimes. Think of the genocide in Rwanda. Have you tracked the history of the Hutus and the Tutsis who look identical to each other? No difference in the people except the markings they give themselves killing one another in genocidal fashion. Carnage galore. Streets flowing with blood. What about the Cambodian killing fields? Have you seen these pictures of 1.3 million people packed in mass graves or the German concentration camps? Now you've got a picture of Assyria. This is those people. This is how they operate. God gave them a nickname in chapter 3, verse 1. The bloody city. See, God knew all about it. When they came tearing through Israel, and they went running down the little dirt pathways that connected one village to another, and they found little children and women hiding in the bushes, and they did unspeakable things to them, God saw all of it. 
and he saw deeper into their heart. So about a hundred years later, from their conquest of Israel, it was all part of God's sovereign plan in ways that we tread on the precipice of mystery to understand. He does things that are beyond us. We can't explain them all, but we can agree with Him that He's sovereignly and in control of it all. And about a hundred years after their conquest of Israel, Israel, um, pardon me, Assyria would be devastated themselves. And that by the Babylonians. That's what Nahum is about. That's what Nahum is telling them. Now I want you to imagine the steel spine in this man's back. I want you to see the nerve that this prophet has. It's not because he's a great man, but it's because he's captured and captivated by a great God. It's the character of God that causes him to open his mouth to say to a marauding band and a conquering army like Assyria, just wait. God's coming for you. Who has courage to speak like that? I'll tell you who. Little nobodies like Nineveh. From a little nowhere town that we're told of in verse 1 of chapter 1 that you probably never even heard of before. A little nobody talks like that when they get captivated by the God of heaven. What is He like? Who is He? Not who do you think He is and how do you think He's going to treat people. Who is He? And how does He describe Himself? Do not be deceived, friends. As we've been saying to the minor prophets, God is not mocked. What looks like power for the wicked today will soon vanish. It's just a mirage. It's not going to last. You try to grab it and it's like the smoke of the book of Ecclesiastes. You clasp your hand, you open it, and there's nothing left. The nation that will not honor the Lord will soon be overthrown. The nation that seeks to rule by bloodshed and violence must repent or perish. Those are God's terms and He will not change them. In Romans chapter 1, He says it plainly. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. History goes on to tell us, biblical and extra-biblical both, that Assyria would soon fall to Babylon. It did happen in about 612 B.C. Nahum writing about 650 B.C. I'm sure a lot of people thought that Nahum had lost his mind. He was another madman out talking about this God somewhere off in the sky. And then in comes Babylon. Just as Nahum had prophesied. And the Babylonians were told later, we know from the annals of history, they themselves, as proud and godless as they were, all their military might and pomp and show, they too would soon fall to the Persians. And the Persians, who thought that they had a corner on the market of might, would soon fall to the Greeks. And the Greeks would soon fall to the Romans. And so goes the long, sad story of man trying to reign independently of God. Now before I make an application, let me be crystal clear. I don't find one verse in the entire Bible about the United States of America. Not one. I think that all the end times chart makers who see American flags in the Bible are mistaken. I'm not saying that I don't believe that God's sovereign over the rise of our nation and how we got to where we are. But there isn't, isn't there a clear application from the pages of Nahum for these United States? Like Assyria, we too are an empire that was established on injustice and bloodshed. 
We stand in the line of those who did horrific and unspeakable things to the natives of this land. And we all gathered our families last week to celebrate it. Not only toward the natives of this land, but toward those who were stolen from another land and sold into slavery. The soil of our republic is soaked with the blood of the innocent and God has not forgotten it. Like Assyria, America will not be brought to a favorable status before the living God unless she has a thorough repentance before His face. And if we repent, then our repentance will be thoroughly biblical like every other example you could find similar to Zacchaeus. Remuneration for our crimes against humanity. Then we too, if we will not repent, and will not remunerate, like Assyria, and like Babylon, and like Persia, and like Greece, and like Rome, and like pick your empire, we too, yes, these United States of America, will one day soon be a footnote in the annals of world history. Gone. Forgotten. Friends, the character of God is on the line in the book of Nahum. And here's the operative question. I know people who may listen to this sermon presently or online 20 years from now may say, there goes another ranting mad preacher. I wonder what they thought about Nahum for those 40 or 50 years until Babylon came. Here's the operative question. If you want to know what Nahum's forcing us to ask, if we'll read it honestly, God is forcing us to ask these pages, what will a God like this do with a people like that? What will a God like this do with a people like that? Not the God of our imagination. Not the God we've concocted and Americanized to find the answer the Bible Project fellows are worth quoting again. What will a God like this do with a wicked people like that? The book of Nahum, they say, addresses the tragedy of violent oppression and human suffering in history. Two ways. Number one, God is grieved by the death of the innocent. If you don't believe that, you don't know Him. We read this morning in our scriptural call to worship that precipitated into our prayer time, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? Prayerfully meditated on that. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Has it occurred to you that little finite you, little tiny 21st century you, little vapor of a life you, here today, gone tomorrow you, has it ever occurred to you that little bitty you can bring grief to the heart of Almighty God? And Nahum tells us that God is grieved by the death of the innocent. It will be accounted for. The slaughter of millions through the atrocity of abortion doesn't go unnoticed by the eye of our all-seeing King and the suffering of His saints in any capacity at the hands of the wicked, whether it be ridicule or shots from a rifle, 
does not go unnoticed by the hand and the all-seeing eye of our King. God is grieved by the death of the innocent. But the Bible project goes on to say there's a second aspect. And this is really what Nahum is all about. What will a God like this do with a wicked people like that? The main thing Nahum wants us to know, yes, God is grieved by the death of the innocent, but He's not an impotent God who cannot act. Mainly, Nahum wants us to know that God's goodness and justice compel Him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. He orchestrates it. The goodness and justice of God compel Him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. We've got to believe that. Because He is who He is. He is good and He is just. He therefore orchestrates the downfall of oppressive nations. We could apply that to individuals. In this sermon, I make a very obvious and equally unashamed prediction. If America will not have a rush of blood to her cheeks causing her to blush in true repentance before God for her sins against the original inhabitants of this land and against those whom she stole from other lands and perpetually sold on a whim, then the character of God requires that we too, like Assyria, will become an afterthought to the subsequent generations and be soon forgotten. The destruction of the wicked. God's character demands it. Second and finally, the delivery of the righteous. The whole book of Nahum does not hinge on Assyria or Babylon who would soon destroy them. It doesn't even hinge on Israel, God's remnant. The book of Nahum hinges on God. Who is He? What is He like? How does He operate? Why does He operate that way? The delivery of the righteous. Well, the answer may really surprise you. After hearing so much about the destruction of the wicked, I've surveyed from you chapters 1 to 3. After hearing so much about the destruction of the wicked, the book of Nahum is not mainly about that. It's mainly about God's goodness. His goodness. I don't know what you conjure up in your mind if you were to be required to give a definition of the phrase, of the question, what does it mean that God is good? Nahum tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. But no sooner than that is expressed to us, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Both are expressions of His goodness. He's slow to anger. He's great in power. What a good God! He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Do you also erupt in, what a good God. See, that phrase, chapter 1, verse 3, is a quotation of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 when God revealed Himself to Moses. Following Israel's rebellion and sin, following Sinai and Moses' intercession, please don't destroy them. If you're going to destroy them, destroy me too. If you're not going to go with us, don't lead us up from here. We want your presence. And God reveals Himself. I'm slow to anger. I'm great in power. I'm abundant in compassion and loving kindness. I will not leave the guilty unpunished. God will punish the wicked and He will be slow to anger. 
And He will exercise His great power, even His Hesed covenant love for all who take refuge in Him, both because toward the wicked and toward those who take refuge in Him because He is good. Matthew Henry says the almighty power that's exerted for the terror and destruction of the wicked is engaged and shall be employed for the protection and satisfaction of His people the righteous. I don't know how acquainted you are with the God of verse 7, but I invite you to Him. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. It's from whence our sermon title comes. Nahum 1.7 The Lord capital L-O-R-D Yahweh the covenant making, covenant keeping God at great cost to Himself. The Lord, the real one, Israel's God, Jehovah, is good. He's a stronghold. Not in spite of, but in the midst of the day of trouble. And is this a strange phrase to you? He knows those who take refuge in Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. What does it mean that the Lord is good? A.W. Pink tells us this. It means that there's such an absolute perfection in God's nature and such an absolute perfection in God's being that there's nothing wanting or defective in Him. Nothing can be added to God, says Pink, to make Him better. He is good. Thomas Manton says He's originally good. Meaning He is good of Himself. Nothing else is like this. For all creatures are only good by participation and communication from God. Of course when God created on the first six days, He declared over it all, including human beings, good, 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 very good. Of course it was good because it flowed out of Him. And He, Thomas Manton says, is essentially good. Not only good, but God is goodness itself. The creature's good is a super added quality. In God, it is His essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is just a drop. But in God, there's an infinite ocean or gathering together of all goodness. He is eternally and immutably good. He cannot be less than good because that's who He is. As there can be no addition to Him, so also there can be no subtraction from Him. The Lord is good. That's verse 7. And that's written to a people who two doors down had the hut pillaged and the children mutilated and the women raped. Had the fathers killed and ran through with the sword. That's who it's written to. Assyria was at the height of their empire. Their military prowess had been unmatched to date. And they had wreaked havoc on Israel. And Nahum's message to those people is, Jehovah is good. God is good. Not circumstantially, based on what we experience, but essentially, who He is, He is good. 
He goes on to say in verse 7, God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. That's a military word. A stronghold. A safety. A safe haven. A refuge. A hiding place. Free from harm. God is that. Jehovah is that. The capital L-O-R-D, covenant-making, covenant-keeping, God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. There is no safety outside of God. It's all a house of cards. It's a figment of our imagination. It's just a smokescreen. Real security is in Christ. He's not a stronghold in spite of the day of trouble or when the day of trouble is over. During the day of trouble, God is good. And in that day, He is your stronghold. That's who He is. Have you leaned into Him and learned something of His good heart in the midst of your challenge and devastation of sin around you? But third and finally, Nahum says, not only is the Lord good, not only is He a stronghold in the day of trouble, also He says in verse 7 of chapter 1, He knows those who take refuge in Him. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I thought He was omniscient. I thought He knows everything. I thought He knows everybody. Why is Nahum saying He knows a particular group of people? Because He does. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. He knows your thoughts before you think them, Psalm 139. He knows your prayers before you pray them, Matthew chapter 7. He knows how many hairs are on the top of your head, Matthew chapter 10. He literally wove you together inside your mother's womb, Psalm 139. He knows what you will do tomorrow or if you will be here tomorrow. He knows everything about everything about everyone. That's what it means for Him to be omniscient. It means that He's never learned anything. Nothing has ever occurred to God. He knows everyone thoroughly. But He knows a particular subset of humanity in a special way. In an experiential way. In a relational way. A way that engenders communion on the basis of union with Him. He knows those Who does He know that way, Nahum? Those who take refuge in Him. That's a hiding word. Those who hide themselves in God. From whom? The only active agent of harm in the book of Nahum is God. God's the one coming after the evil people. God's the one that Assyria should hide from in true repentance. And Nahum is saying to Israel, if you will hide from Him in Him, you'll be safe forever. The good news of the Gospel, we talk about it all the time. Have you been saved? You need to get saved. That is true. You must be saved. You didn't get born saved. You don't get saved by coming to church. You don't get saved by reading your Bible. You don't get saved by praying your prayers. Jesus saves you. You must be saved. But saved from what? It's not a what, it's a whom. Revelation tells us it's saved from the wrath of the Lamb. We're saved from God. We're saved from God. From God's fierce anger because He will not compromise His character. He is so good and so committed to His goodness that He will not let your sin in His presence else it would diminish His deity. He's so good That if you want to be safe, you have to hide from Him in Him. That's the beauty of the Gospel. 
Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. This is the Gospel. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Have you ever done a study on those whom God knows and those whom He doesn't know? You've memorized probably Psalm chapter 1. He knows the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You may have thought about the Old and New Testament themes of God knowing some and not knowing others. Paul says to the Thessalonians, the Lord knows those whom are His. When Jesus tells a parable about the ten virgins, five lost, five saved, five with the Holy Spirit, five empty, five who have God, five who don't, to the five who are lost, who come back after the bridegroom is long gone for the wedding, He turns around and says to them, I never knew you, Matthew 25. Maybe you've thought of the judgment passage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 where it says, people will say to Jesus, how deceived do people have to be? Seriously, guys. How deceived do people have to be not to tell the preacher they're a Christian or tell their husband or wife they're a Christian or their children or their church they're a Christian. How deceived do people have to be to do Matthew 7.21? Many will say to me, Jesus said. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew You. You who practice lawlessness. Galatians chapter 4 preaches the Gospel this way. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And then it goes on in that very same passage to put the most blessed comma in the whole Bible in a verse. Galatians chapter 4, verse 9. Now that you have come to know God, comma, or better yet, to be known by God. Why do you again return to your elementary form of wickedness from which you were redeemed? Does God know you? Nahum says He knows those who take refuge in Him. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, why are you so puffed up about what you know? The Corinthians were puffed up about who they know. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of of Jesus. They were puffed up about what they know. God says, that's all foolishness. The wisdom of man is foolishness compared to God. And they were also puffed up about what they know. Pride. Arrogance. Haughtiness. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, and he says, He who supposes that he knows anything has not yet known what he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. God knows some people in a special way. As His children, as His redeemed, who flee from the wrath to come by hiding themselves in the wounds of the risen Jesus, covered up in His righteousness, who paid for their sins on the cross. Matthew Henry says, here we find a magnificent display of the glory of God. In a mixture of wrath and justice against the wicked, and in a mixture of mercy and grace toward His people. And the discovery of His majesty power, and goodness are seen in both. 
See, God is not good because we can repeat a mantra. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Psalm chapter 36 says, The goodness of God is reserved for those who fear Him. You don't even know if He's good unless you fear Him. I don't mean He's good because we think that when He does nice things for us, He's good. And when hard things happen to us, He's bad. I mean He's good because He'll never violate His character. He'll never compromise His person. He will never lower His standard of integrity. He will always uphold the honor of His immutable, intrinsic value. He is good. And He is good on the basis of His own goodness so that Jesus would say to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. That is God. God is good. He is thoroughly good. The ruler had no clue what goodness was. What does God's goodness look like toward people who are not good? That's the question of Nahum. The Lord is good, chapter 1, verse 7. God would have to cease being God before Assyria's wickedness could go unpunished. God would have to stop being God to let you go to His heaven when you die if you won't come to Him through the one mediator. He would be bad if He saved you outside of Jesus. He would be bad if He forgave your sins apart from the mediatorial work of Christ. Why would heaven's favorite have to spill His blood on a hill outside of Jerusalem if you could be saved any other way, that would mean God is bad. But He's good. Assyria's wickedness cannot go unpunished. Why? Because God is good. Your sin cannot go undealt with. Why? Because God is good. God's goodness and justice compel Him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations and individuals. Do you believe this? The fall of Assyria and the death of Jesus are both expressions of the goodness of God. The first, a small shadow. The second, the real substance. God will not tolerate sin. Why? Why won't He do it? Because He cannot. Do you see that one flows from the other? He will not do it because He cannot do it. If you're thinking of a God who can, then you are certainly entertaining the idol of your imagination. Why will God not tolerate sin? He's good. He cannot do it. It's not an option for Him. Another way to say it is this. God's goodness demands payment for sin. For the non-Christian, oh, I hope you'll look at the cross of Jesus. For the non-Christian, the crucifixion of Jesus is proof positive that God will demand payment for your sin. Do you think God will put forward Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 3, as a propitiation in His blood to demonstrate God's own righteousness. Do you believe that God would let His Son be crucified and not deal with your sin? He's too good for that. What Jesus endured on the cross for forgiveness and salvation for God's people is precisely what non-Christians will endure forever. Did you hear that? What Jesus Christ endured on the cross for the forgiveness and salvation of God's people is what non-Christians will endure forever. The reason you have to die forever if you won't have your sin forgiven in Jesus. 
The reason Assyria has to be wiped off the map and Babylon after them and Persia and Greece and Rome and maybe us too one day is because sin cannot go unpunished. The reason we die forever is because we'll never exhaust God's justice in the payment for our sin. We're finite creatures. We've sinned against an infinite God. You therefore have to die forever in your sin if you will not have them forgiven in Christ. And that's because God is God and God is good. Assyria couldn't hide from God's judgment. That would very soon come through Babylon. What makes you think that you can hide from God's coming judgment through Christ? What makes you think you can hide from His judgment? Acts 17 says it plainly, God's already appointed a day. He's already fixed a day. I'm quoting to you. God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. The day is coming. It's already fixed. It's not going to change. Revelation 6.16 says all the pagan nations and all the peoples will on that day, quote, seek to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. I wonder where Assyria ran when Babylon came. But for the Christian... Oh, dear Christian, are you in Israel today? 650 years before Jesus is born? Do you have trouble every direction you look? Is your life ransacked? Is your family in disarray? Is your own heart in shambles? Do you feel that there are wars without and fears within? You can't overcome the lingering, nagging sin issues of your life? Christian, listen to this. Israel was just as safe on the day that Nahum prophesied as they were the day after Assyria fell. God would have to uncrucify Jesus before He could punish those whom Jesus has forgiven. God's goodness not only demands that every sin be punished, God's goodness also demands and declares that He has already been propitiated for our crimes against Him through the cross death and blood and righteousness of His Son. And the New Testament repeatedly tells us that Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation. We are accepted. We are forgiven. It doesn't matter if we feel that way or what our circumstances may say to us. Nahum's coming down the road, Israel, to tell you your God is good. Your God is a stronghold, even in the day of trouble. And He is a refuge if you'll hide yourself in Him. Well, I conclude with these two application points. One to those who are without Christ. I encourage you to read the book of Nahum this afternoon. Three little chapters, 15 or 20 minutes of your time, well spent. To those who are without Christ, think about this. In your world history, tell me the nation that survived. Name one nation that has endured from their inception till this day in their rebellion against God. Every godless nation will fall. So why wouldn't you turn to Christ? First John says it this way, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. The world is passing away and all of its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Just like every pagan nation has or soon will perish, I also would ask you if you're not yet a Christian, tell me one believer I'm not talking about a nation of believers. I'm talking about one solitary little peon believer. Tell me one of them who has ever regretted following the Lord God Almighty, being united to His Son, and having everlasting life in His kingdom. Can you think of one in world history that's ever turned around and said, I wish I would never have given my life to Jesus? Zero. We see nations fall and individuals stand. Oh, those who are without Christ. Weigh carefully that every single sin will be punished. Because God is good. It will either be punished in you forever or in Christ at the cross. So turn to Christ. That's my word to the unbeliever. To those who are in Christ, I close here. Do you know that God's character demands something wonderful for you? I'm going to ask Him what you're going through and I'm not trying to minimize how significant and severe it may be. I want you to think about Him and not you for just a moment and see if He won't meet you in His mercy by your contemplation of His true character. This is what I mean. If you're in Christ, do you know that His his character demands that He meet you in your trouble? He cannot not show up. Hebrews chapter 2 says it this way, because He Himself suffered in that which He has tempted, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Just like Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ comes right up beside you. In a sense, He gets even closer to you. In the middle of your trouble and temptation. He's good. And He's not going to compromise that. In fact, you can know it for sure. Objectively, not subjectively. Based on a a fact outside of you, not a feeling inside of you. Outside of you, the cross of Jesus Christ is the proof that He definitely will one day deliver you from all your trouble. And until then, you don't have to fret. You don't have to fear. You don't have to wonder or worry. You don't have to let your anxious thoughts multiply inside of you with nowhere to go. You can know for sure that God will meet you in your trouble as we've said, but He'll also do something else. Maybe your troubles are because like Israel, somebody else has sinned against you. Maybe you've got an Assyria also. I don't want to over-spiritualize the text, but maybe you've got an enemy outside of you that's coming for you. Maybe you have people that hate you and have done you horrific wrong guess what? You don't have to take revenge. You know why? God will perfectly mete out justice. He'll deal with every sin. You don't have to. That's why Romans says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you hear that? He's going to judge every sin. You don't have to judge it. You can trust Him in the middle of your suffering, whether it's owing to sin or something else, your own or someone else's, and not take revenge. 
One commentator says, let sinners read Nahum and tremble. Let saints read Nahum and triumph. The wrath of God is here revealed from heaven against His enemies. His favor and mercy are here assured to His faithful, loyal subjects. And His almighty power is shown in both expressions, making His wrath very terrible and His favor very desirable. You know how Nahum ends? Chapter 1 verse 15 is a poetic expression of the way the, the whole book would end. And it sounds like this. one fifteen. Behold, on the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. You know what's coming for every Christian? Everlasting peace. Not only no more sin, no more capacity to sin. Not only in you, but in everyone around you. One day, because of the risen Lord Jesus, who's the first fruits of what is to come, we'll all be in a glorified state like He is. No more sinful nations around us. No more sinful neighbors beside us. No more sin nature in us. The verse of 115 is actually quoted in the New Testament. To compel us as Christians to repent, to turn to Christ before it's everlastingly too late. And it says it like this. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on Him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, Nahum 1.15, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. One of the brothers in the church. This happens to me every Sunday morning, by the way, and I love it. Hunter Coy, meditating on the sermon passage today, sent me a message. Again, it happens from all sorts of people, and I love it. Hunter's message this morning, meditating, getting his heart ready for Nahum. He says this, Brother, praise God for the warrior God of Nahum. A striking precursor to the end time defeat of the wicked world systems mentioned in Revelation 17 and 18. Jesus, Hunter says, the warrior lamb conquers his and our enemies. He vindicates us. And in Revelation 19 says that we rejoice over these grand truths just like Nahum 1.15. If God did it in Nineveh, and He did, He'll definitely do it on a worldwide scale at the eschaton, the end of the age. And we can have hope that we will overcome and have victory in Christ Jesus. Praise Him for His judgments are true and righteous. And in classic Hunter fashion, he put woohoo at the end of that. <laughs> Won't you call on the name of Jesus? You think He'll not meet you in your trouble, Christian? You think He'll not save you from your sin? Oh, rebel, won't you believe that He died on a cross to save you all by Himself, all from Himself, and all for Himself? To save you from the wrath of a good God that your bad sin deserved. And that He rose again in good news for bad people that you can share in the overflow of His goodness forever and ever. Indeed, life with Him forevermore.
That's the message and the promise of the book of Nahum. Join me as we pray.